Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast where we are learning to invest. And today we're talking about the best investor in the world. Warren Buffett wrote a letter <laughs> that we've been talking you about for two weeks. right into it, Dad. I love it. He's, he's the guy. So Danielle, you've been reading this letter. And you wait, have wait, been. I gotta stop you. Oh, you do. I love, I love the enthusiasm, but I gotta stop you. Do you know uh, why? Why? Because oh, it's a special episode. It is kind of a quasi-special episode. I'm, I'm gonna just throw it out there. It's a very special episode because it's our hundred and second episode, Dad. One hundred and second. So we're celebrating not the one hundredth episode. Uh, cause we forgot. Cause we forgot. <laughs> and not the 101, because we forgot. Right. But it's the 102nd, which is <laughs> even more exciting. We're two past the 100 mark. We're well on our way to 200. It has a two in it. Yeah, we did I'm, it on purpose because we weren't sure we'd get to 101. So we didn't want to <laughs> celebrate and then not get over the hump. But we're over yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. we're very safe investors in our time and our podcast. <laughs> We are. We had a margin of safety on the 100th celebration. But seriously, <laughs> this is really exciting that we're over 100 episodes and... Almost 1.7 million downloads of the podcast. That is cracking me up. Thank you all for listening. Yeah. I mean, frankly, we'd be talking about this to each other without you guys, but it wouldn't be nearly as fun. And so. for all of our family members who downloaded the podcast 14,000 times each, we just really want to thank you for all that you guys trouble. Are so nice. So yep. thank you for buying 17 iPhones. Exactly. <laughs> okay, let's get on with it. We need yeah. to talk about this letter. I, this is yeah. a. When Buffett writes these letters, you got to read them. They're at, they're at BerkshireHathaway.com, um, Chairman's Letters. Click on it, and they go all the way back to, I don't know, 1977 or something. And you just got to read them, you guys. They're just the best education for an investor that you could possibly have. The letters are maybe 30 pages long. They're so worth it. Just read one a month or something, and within a few years, you'll have the best investing education that's possible. And you'll be able to know where you fit in the investing world. Like, and that's what Danielle's trying to do, is trying to figure out, where am I? Am I a person that's going to invest my own money? Am I a person that's going to knowledgeably give it to someone and watch over what they're doing with knowledge and skill? Am I going to be handing it to someone and not have a clue what they're doing? Am I just going to put it into indexes? So you have, I'm going to put it under the bed, you know? I mean, you have all these choices, and we're, we're, we want to be, I think we want to know that we're making a choice consciously for what type of investor we're going to be. And, and in Buffett's letters, you're going to read about the different types of investors. I mean, he's very clear that he expects his family to stick the entire fortune of Berkshire that he owns when he dies into an index fund. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does say that that's the best way to handle your money if you don't really want to handle your money. If you if don't... Yeah. You're not really invested in choosing which companies are going to be good uh, good stewards, stewards yeah, of your that's money. A good, that's a great word. Good yeah. stewards of your money. And the, and the problem is that there's Warren knows from long experience that there's only a handful of professional investors who have the courage, the patience, the integrity 
to invest the way he does. I mean, there's just an institutional imperative out there that grabs you by the throat when you start managing other people's money. You begin doing really, really well because it's not rocket science to make great returns. That's why we're teaching you guys. But after you make great returns, people want to give you their money. And the more money they give you, the bigger you are. And the bigger you are, the harder it gets to find great things to invest in. And ultimately, the size of your fund grows to a size where you can no longer successfully beat the market. And that happens to 99% of the people who are managing money professionally. The people who can manage to do what Buffett does year in and year out for 60 years with billions of dollars, I probably can count them on um, probably your fingers and toes and my fingers and toes. Probably about 40 people. Um, yeah. This is our third episode talking about this letter and we asked everyone to go read it. Hopefully you read it. I, I do think it's really worth your time. And as dad was saying, I think the particularly interesting thing to me about these Buffett letters is how extraordinarily candid he is in a way that, you know, like I've read some other CEO letters and other annual reports and they are uh, bland. This letter is not bland. This letter <laughs> is full of meat. It's full of opinion. It's full of emotion. It's full of advertising for his companies. It's, and it's, what's, what it's I really not, like, it's full of self-criticism as well. And that you almost never see in somebody's corporate letter. It's extraordinary. And it's a real investing education. And that's why we're spending three entire episodes on it. I think it's worthwhile. So yeah. today, I want to mention a couple things I noticed because last time we talked about um, some rather in-depth topics, but I just wanted to mention as I read it, uh, he goes sort of uh, industry by industry through his companies because they own so many different companies and they do so many different things that he just split them up according to like what sector they're in. So the first one he talks about is insurance. And I have nothing to say about that section, except that what I learned is how I know almost nothing about the insurance industry. I mean, <laughs> it was fascinating. I really enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot and I realized, wow, I truly had no clue how my even my auto insurance works. Well, I, I think there's one thing that's really cool to, to read in there, and that is that I think Buffett kind of makes the implication that insurance companies don't really make any money, and many of them lose money. Um, it's just yeah, that they have the float. They don't have, he implies that they don't have enough reserves, really, yeah. to withstand a downturn. Exactly, and that they really don't invest the float as well as he does, and because he invests the float very, very well, um, Berkshire has made, I think, $28 million in the last 10 years or something, or some $28 billion in the last 10 years just off the float. And they've never had a losing year with their insurance company. And that makes them just really unique in the insurance world. So I'm saying this because just in general, unless you happen to really love insurance companies and want to dig into them and they're deep in your center of uh, your circle of competence, you might want to leave that for later. That's They're very, very hard to understand um, how an insurance company is going to do in the future because you have to know enough about it to appreciate what its risks are that it's already taken, and that's almost impossible. So I would say yeah, let's leave those off for a while. Yeah, but I mean, if you're an insurance agent or you're, you know, whatever, you're tangentially related to the insurance industry and you know about this stuff, like, you've got a great advantage over the rest of us. Go for it. 
You do, particularly if you know that an insurance company is not taking the risk that, you know, that, you know, it would appear they're taking. Um, but the same issue goes with banks. It's very difficult to know what level of risk banks have taken when they've lent money out and all yeah. over the place and backed up derivative bets, which are backed up by further derivative bets. And you almost have no idea how a bank's going to end up if they start to unravel the system. And uh, for that reason, it's another area that we really just urge you to, you know, be be patient in spades before diving into banking and insurance companies. Yeah, I would say read that section. And if you totally got it and thought, well, that was all really obvious, then great. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, that was not my reaction, but I, <laughs> I enjoyed learning about it. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about Geico because Warren Buffett owns Geico. So that little tiny green lizardy thing that's on TV all the time, that's owned by Warren Buffett. And he says, I just enjoy this because because uh, we talk about moats so much. He literally just says, Geico has a low-cost moat. That's what we do at Geico. Yep. We have a competitive advantage that is intrinsic and durable, and it's that our costs can be lower than anybody else's. Yep. And that's what you're looking for in a company. If you can't find that in the company's 10K, in, in the, the reports from the chairman and the CEO, if they're not highlighting, like Warren Buffett just did in his annual letter, highlighting the moat that his company has, this intrinsic characteristic that protects it, if they can't highlight it, it's kind of an indication there might not be one. So don't work hard to invent one. We want to, want to remember, six. we want to jump over six inch bars, not six foot bars. So if the, the moat doesn't leap out at you like it would with a railroad or let's say even an airline today is now starting to have tremendous moats because of consolidation. Um, if it doesn't jump out at you, then they're, then that's too hard. Right there, just too hard. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So here's the real meat of what I wanted to talk about today because this is accounting, and as you know, that is not my strong suit. He talks about, on page 12, he talks about how he doesn't like to use EBITDA, which is an acronym for earning uh, specific, a specific EBITDA number, but the acronym is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That, that's just to be clear. That's EBITDA, right? EBITDA. EBITDA. Did I say it wrong? No, you said EBITDA. it good. EBITDA. EBITDA. Let's say it as many times EBIT. as we can. EBITDA. 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 But EBIT is a different thing. And actually what he says is he likes to use EBIT without the duh, without the, <laughs> without the depreciation and the amortization, um, which just really stuck out to me. I mean, he talks about it in terms of a ratio of earnings before interest and taxes to interest, this ratio like over interest. Anyway, read it. Uh, well, I think this is, a, he's, He's kind of coming at a lot of people who run hedge funds, a lot of people who talk casually about the value of a business, um, even in bankruptcy courts, in places where they're trying to determine the value of assets. They often talk about EBITDA and multiples of EBITDA. Absolutely. And in my law practice, when we do corporate M&A, mergers and acquisitions, we talk about EBITDA. It's super common. Yeah, basically what Buffett's saying is using EBITDA is not a very good 
way of judging the real uh, bottom line of a company or a division of a company. You, you don't really know where you are if for some reason you get rid of the duh before you figure things out, right? You're going to include the duh. So the okay. duh we, is... We talked about this in deep. Yes, the duh is. Duh is. So interest, we can see, is an expense. You literally have to pay it. Taxes is an expense. You literally have to pay taxes. But what he's saying is depreciation and amortization are not literal expenses. So, Dad, what <laughs> is amortization? All right. Depreciation and amortization are, are accounting terms for kind of intangible or tangible um, lifetime value of assets. So these are things like trucks and buildings and railroad trains. And there are also things like goodwill, um, um, patents, trademarks. So some of these things are really, you know, brick and mortar. And some of these things are kind of intangible intellectual things. Yeah. Um, and Those what they're very hard to value. They're very hard to value. And, and what Buffett is saying is that if you if you pretend that depreciation and amortization um, don't matter. In other words, you have your earnings before you subtract depreciation and amortization, then you're living in kind of a fantasy world because companies have capital expenditures all the time. And that's where you find depreciation and amortization. Actual expenditures are in capital expenditures. So, it, it's basically faking it a little bit and making the numbers look better than they are to not include depreciation and amortization when you're looking at what's your bottom line for that division of that company or that part of that company. So let's, what is, so what is depreciation? Okay. What is amortization? So let's say that you are uh, buying real estate as an investor and you buy a home for, let's say, a million dollars. When you buy the house, you have the seller... Um, or you just have it appraised, and you determine that $500,000 of the house is the land, and $500,000 of the house is the house. Well, the IRS will let you depreciate the house portion of this investment over a 20-year lifetime. And what that means is they're going to allow you to call 1 20th of, of that house an expense every year that you didn't actually incur. Right, Because in the theory is that the house is deteriorating, has a 20-year lifetime, and then you have to build a new house. <clears throat> yeah, depreciation means that it's becoming less useful over time to the point where it gets to zero and you have to buy a new one of that thing. Right. So you can see the real estate lobby got a hold of the IRS and said, hey, let us depreciate these buildings over a 20-year period of time. And the IRS agents probably went, well, wait a second. They don't, they don't depreciate. They appreciate. Oh, well, they don't appreciate forever. You have to knock them down someday. You know, give us a really short life. We, uh, we owned farms for a bunch of years when you were a little kid. And we had orange groves. And we, we made a deal with Getty Oil where we could uh, put the majority of the purchase price of the farm into the orange trees and a very small piece of it into the dirt. And we were able to depreciate those orange trees, according to the IRS depreciation schedule, at five years per tree, which was great because those orange trees will last 15 to 20 years of actual useful life. 
and we could write them off fast so that we could get a lot of the cash back uh, by tax savings. So depreciation is really, really important to understand whether it is an artificial amount of money, which it is sometimes, and Buffett talks about that in this letter, or whether it's real. And he gives us yeah. two examples here, yeah. actually. He gives us one example of businesses that they've purchased over time where they are required to amortize the goodwill of that business. The, the, the sort of, if you buy a business, they, they look at the book value of the business and that gets incorporated onto your balance sheet. And then anything you pay for it more than book value goes in as goodwill. And so it does, it's just an intangible. It doesn't have any connection to any you know, uh, bricks and mortar. And so they, they require that you depreciate that over a period of time. And Buffett's point is that those are artificial depreciations. You, the goodwill of, of these businesses, for the most part, that he's bought over these years has appreciated dramatically from just its original purchase. For example, Seize Candy, they bought the whole business for $25 million. Let's say they allocated $10 million to good, goodwill. <clears throat> Today, that company produces $65 million a year in free cash flow to Buffett. But wait, they depreciated goodwill? They didn't, like, they're saying goodwill is diminishing to the point where it's no longer useful? Well, it's... Or they, or they amortize goodwill. And well, by the way, we haven't yet defined amortization. You're, as soon as you go to the difference between depreciation and amortization, you're getting over my head. <laughs> so. isn't, isn't amortization paying something off over time? Like spreading spreading the payments out over time? Yeah. but and the, Which is why I don't know the difference. We have to have a CPA like, tell us. <laughs> you know, whether you're what, what I know is that the, the D and the A, the duh part of this thing, doesn't have a corresponding dollar expense that year. In other words, you didn't take money out of your pocket for either amortization or depreciation. And so when Buffett's got businesses that they are required to get rid of the goodwill because of accounting rules, then the getting rid of that goodwill is really an artificial loss. It, it's reducing their income artificially, and it's reducing the assets artificially that they actually own, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some crazy stuff out there. there there's a company called uh, Alexander and Baldwin that owns thousands of acres of Maui, which were bought by people in around 1910. And it's on the books in that company at the price they paid in 1910. Because that, that's just the way that deal works, right? So you got these strange accounting rules and they, you have to understand them for your company. But in general, the problem that Buffett is raising is that sometimes depreciation and amortization are completely never an expense at all. And therefore, you're artificially lowering your earnings. And sometimes, like as an example with a railroad, Burlington Northern, the depreciation that they're paying every year, that they're calling depreciation every year, he said... <clears throat> we're writing off $2.1 billion a year in depreciation in that company. If that's all we put back into it in terms of capital expenditures, that railroad would fall apart in just a matter a, a matter of a short number of years. So our, yeah. oh our true costs are higher. I can find the number here quickly. I couldn't believe the number of dollars that they, here it is. They have invested $8.9 billion in plant and equipment last year, in just one year. 
Yeah, and Buffett's basic approach to this is that the 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 problem with generally accepting accounting principles is that they often misstate the reality of the business, which is why the number one principle that we follow about buying a company is understanding the business. So if you if you don't understand the business, then you don't really know what the truth is for um, for you know the bottom line earnings and free cash flow of your business. You have no idea. So. You've just got to, um, you've got to understand the business is what this all comes down to, really. Just, you've got to understand the business. Yeah, I mean, amortization, depreciation is something I can wrap my head around a little more. Amortization means, as I said, spreading payments over multiple periods or allocating the cost over multiple periods. And that's just purely... I mean, I know I'm not an accounting expert by any stretch, but it seems to me to be a purely accounting system. Like it doesn't actually correspond to money in, money out. Right. And it never will. I mean, obviously, there's some times when maybe it just happens to, but they have to make some decisions and that's how they decided to, to do it. Hey, we're at the halfway point of this episode and I want to take a second to invite you guys over to investedpodcast.com on that site you can continue the conversation and you can get our show notes. And I also have a special offer for my podcast listeners right there on the site. So head over there and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. Now back to Invested. The next thing that I think is real important that Buffett points to is I'd point you to uh, page 16 on this on this uh, annual letter where he gets uh, in... The adjusted earnings. Yeah, where he gets into to really chastising management uh, for not putting in their commentary about the company, not putting it in their communications to their to their existing shareholders to describe the unusual way depreciation and amortization works in their company. Instead, what they're doing is they're, they're saying, okay, well, here's what gap earnings say, but that's not really the case. What Here, let's restate these things. <clears throat> and not include anything that was a big one-time expense this year. We don't really need to call amortization and depreciation what they are uh, because they're not really that important this year. And and so he basically says, in fact, I just want to read this to you, Danielle. He says, Charlie and I want management in their commentary. Those are his, his bold statement. To describe unusual items, good or bad, that affect Sorry, the gap numbers. Your- your dog, right? That's Dewey shaking. <laughs> but okay. a management that regularly attempts to wave away, he says, after all, the reason we look at these numbers of the past is to make estimates for the future. But a management that regularly attempts to wave away very real cost by highlighting, quote, adjusted per share earnings makes us nervous. That's because bad behavior is contagious. CEOs who overtly look for ways to report high numbers tend to foster a culture in which subordinates strive to be helpful as well. Goals like that can lead, for example, to insurers underestimating their loss reserves, a practice that has destroyed many industry participants. So he says, Charlie, and he just really cringe when analysts are talking good about managers who are like making their numbers every quarter. And that's one of the really horrible things about public companies and about Wall Street is that, you know, people crave certainty because they, they're, they're trying to track two or 300 companies in their fund. And as a result, they just want somebody that always makes their numbers, always, 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 every quarter. 
and you start to end up with managers who are making up their numbers to make their yeah, numbers. Yeah, I thought I, I thought that, <clears throat> that was a huge point that he. I mean, it just it really calls out a lot of. Stuff. Oh, listen, this this sticks in my craw because when you were a baby, <clears throat> I think you were about five or six years old. Um, I had a lot of money into a um, a company that was working with Steve Jobs on the next computer. The next computer failed, and we moved that that software was moved by the company over to a Windows NT platform, and uh, ultimately the company was sold to a company called Frame Technologies. And I will never forget the day I got a phone call um, from one of the other venture guys that was in the deal to say that the CEO of Frame had just resigned along with his entire top line group of vice presidents because they made up the numbers for the whole previous quarter. No. Oh, yeah. And you almost had to go to Boise State, baby, because I'm telling you, I had a lot of your money invested in that deal. (laughs) And man, alive. When that happened, that stock price just fell through the floor. And man, I, I, I was absolutely shocked to, to hear that these guys had done that. And there's there's almost no um there's almost no way to, pro- to to protect yourself from from CEOs who are going to make up numbers to try to look good for the next quarter in the hopes that some miracle will happen. It's such a real phenomenon and I think we can all understand all the sides of it. I mean your job as a hired gun CEO is to make the bloody numbers. Yeah. Of course it is. Your job is to grow the company, grow the earnings, say what it's going to be, and then meet it. That's your job. And I mean, there's lots of other things too, but that's a major part of a CEO's job. And if they don't, it is a fireable offense. I mean, their job is on the line. They might get a second chance. They might get a third chance. They're not going to get many more chances beyond that. And I think... Buffett here really calls that culture out, that culture of management having to to do this sort of un, unattainable task. I mean, he says, in truth, I'm quoting from him now, he says, in truth, business is too unpredictable for the numbers always to be met. Inevitably, surprises occur. When they do, a CEO whose focus is centered on Wall Street will be tempted to make up the numbers. I mean, this is a guy who owns dozens of businesses. He sees the ups and downs. He knows surprises happen. Numbers aren't always met. And luckily in his organization, he can ride those things out. But a lot of people can't. So, like, I really I really see both. I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay to make up numbers. Don't get me wrong. But... I get the incentives going on here. Yep. I mean, the incentives are very strong and they're very skewed and they're very wrong. And And I I think one of the reasons that we do, I think one of the reasons I really want you to learn this is because I want you to be a powerful voice of, of consumer advocacy that says, this is BS. You guys need to change the system so badly away from all this quarterly staring at a company through a microscope you need to step back and give these guys some space to do the right thing. And and I, I, I don't know how we can change that culture. I have no idea. But I would love for you to take it on at some point. And every one of you who's listening, if you lend your voice to this, you guys understand that 
it's your money that they're messing with. It's that 85% of the money invested in the stock market is little guy money and pension funds and 401ks and all of that stuff. And if you read this letter, you're going to get an idea that there's some absolutely heinous stuff that goes on in the name of, of uh, corporate management and accountability, and they're getting away with it. And they're getting away with it because you guys don't know any better, and you don't care, and you're not voting your own money. And when you start voting your own money, and you start having values about who's running this business, and how are they running this business, and how are they reporting to me, that's what is going to change it. You can't legislate this stuff away. The market's too powerful. But you can change it by refusing to give these bastards your money when they do these kinds of behaviors. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Oh, that's gonna all say. we're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Let's vote our money because we are together are 85% of the market. And we, we can do something about this. Oh, my gosh. We guys, we can change the world like this. It's so huge. So read the Buffett letter. Um, dig into it. Shoot us any questions you have. We'll be happy to pick them up. But that's it for the Buffett letter. And next week, we're going to get into something new. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a whole new world out there. Episode 103. 103. And I, we're over the hump, over the mountain ridge, and we're sailing off to 200 now. So, um, yeah, we're going to dive into some fun stuff I'm going to talk about next week. Yeah, send so. us your questions and your comments and your ideas for episode topics, and we will get to them. Send it to questions at investedpodcast.com. Oh, and we got, Thanks, everybody. We, we, we got a couple people that have said, you know, they were trying to get into a full Atlanta workshop because we, we fill them up. We only have so much room in the rooms. Um, if, oh. So you might be thinking a little bit ahead. We try to do it once a month. Um, but they are filled up um, sometimes a couple months in ahead. So if you want to come, just let us know and we'll try to work that out. But uh, give us a little more time and, and that'll be better. All right, that's it. Time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.